Let it rip in the most Whoa. polite way possible. Yeah, yeah. unbelievable. <laughs> Everyone in the audience freaks out and stands up and applauds, <laughs> I would imagine. Their hair on fire. <laughs> um, that was Cabin in the Woods, yeah. Uh, Cabin in the Woods from the Evil Dead, the musical soundtrack, uh, which is a thing that exists. The Evil Dead is a rock and roll stage musical based on the Evil Dead film series first performed on stage in 2003 in Toronto, instantly became a hit, eventually moved to off-Broadway run in 2006 at the New World stages. There's been hundreds of regional productions since then. Uh, One critic for the New York Times even hailed it as the next Rocky Horror Picture Show. So if you ain't familiar with Evil Dead the Musical, you better get familiar. I'm just kidding. This episode's not about (laughs) Evil Dead the Musical. It is about Evil Dead. The Evil Dead, the film, the iconic film, one of the most important films in horror, so much so that I've been doing this podcast long enough that I'm sure we've talked about it and covered it in the past, but we never did a full series uh, watch through, or maybe we did and I don't remember it. All the the pre-Jesse years are a blur, and uh, (laughs) we're going to redo everything anyway, probably. So we are doing Sam Raimi's uh, The Evil Dead iconic movie that means a lot to me i don't know what it means to jesse but we'll get into it um came out in 1981 calling card for you know many people including sam raimi we'll get to all of it uh before that news of the week of course there's plenty of horror news to talk about and uh jesse has some horror news of his own uh, <laughs> ooh. yeah ooh. but b- before jesse gets to his horror news i think i should say that this is the New Flesh Podcast, a podcast about horror movies and all things tangentially related to horror and the horror lifestyle, which this week includes um, going to one of the many horror 
not even adjacent. Hashtag horror lifestyle exhibits in New York City. This week, ongoing at the Film Society at Lincoln Center, which I believe is just now called Film at Lincoln Center because society was too highfalutin and put, put <laughs> and on no air. We no longer live in a society. So we know that was the moment that we no longer <laughs> live in a society was decided. Yes. Um, horror lifestyle this week includes going to see a Dario Argento movie or two, which I am going to. Uh, last night, I saw Dark Glasses, the North American premiere of the new Dario Argento movie. He was there in person. I'm talking about it as if it happened because we're recording before it happened, but this episode's out <laughs> after it happened. So I can't tell you nothing about it yet, but I know he's been there all weekend doing screenings of all. It's a retrospective of all his stuff. Uh, and I wanted to shout out that retrospective as well as the horror summer series at the Museum of Modern Art at MoMA that starts this Thursday with Dawn of the Dead, uh, George Romero's iconic late 70s Dawn of the Dead in 3D, which is a thing I didn't even know existed and is very rarely screened. And that is going from, you know, the third week in June through September at MoMA. There's so many horror movies. If there's a, a horror movie that came out and is considered remotely iconic, it is playing at MoMA. And most excitedly, is that even a word? What a horrible way to introduce <laughs> this. Uh, we are most excited here at the podcast to say that we are involved in the Museum of Moving Image, MoMI. Take that, MoMA. Who needs MoMA? We got MoMI, uh, the Museum of Moving Image in Astoria, Queens. They are doing the Films of the Dead series, which is, it's basically all of George Romero's of the dead films, as well as all the adjacent zombie films and whatnot that those films inspired, such as Shaun of the Dead, which is also playing. And I believe One Cut of the Dead is even playing. Yes. So it's this great series and... Ya boy is introducing, I believe it's a double feature of Day of the Dead from 85 and Land of the Dead from 2005, which is a mwah, iconic pairing of two great movies that are very much have a lot to do with each other. They're, I would say they're kind of sequels to each other in a way. We'll get into that at the event. Uh, so I'll be introducing uh, those two movies. I don't even know if I said the second one yet. Day, I did. Day of the Dead, Land of the Dead, July 17th on a Sunday. I believe the first screening is around 2 and the second screening is around 4 o'clock. And then afterwards, Jesse will be joining for a live episode of the New Flesh podcast, whatever the hell that means. We're recording an episode of this podcast live in the, the, uh, the Redstone Theater at the Museum of Moving Image where I've seen so many things and where a lot of things have been filmed and many iconic people have been on stage. We're going to be disgracing that room with a live podcast. And what I hope will be, I can hope I can market it as the first live podcast ever recorded at the Museum of Moving Image. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Um, <laughs> you guys should all come. I'm, you know, I'm encouraging everybody. I, I think the taping for the podcast is like technically free. I'm sure if you wanted to just come for that, you could. But you're encouraged to buy a ticket to... Day of the Dead or Land of the Dead. I'm sure there's a double feature you could purchase. You can just get tickets for one. You could get a pass to go to all of it, which I might be doing because there's so many things. You know, it's doing Night of the Living Dead through 
so what was the last couple Romero's survival and diary of the dead? I've never seen those two actually. Oh, they're not good. Um, <laughs> it's really kind of them to do the full retrospective and play them all. And I appreciate it, but I, w- I am not going to be going to <laughs> survival or diary. And if, you know, if the only way that would have happened is if they were like, yeah, the new flesh can do this fucking thing, but you got to do only those survival. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe in that case, I would have been more eager to do it, but, I was happy to get my first choice and, you know, I asked for those and they gave them to me. So it's an honor to be involved with, the, you know, a place that I frequent and think is one of the coolest things in the city. And I've always wanted to do a live podcast and never really wanted to wade into like, you know, the New York comedy space. It doesn't feel right. Uh-huh. <laughs> like cause I have a toe in that world and I didn't want to be like, yeah, I'm going to use that you know, producer credit I have to put on my own show. Yeah. So uh, I'm not doing that. I'm doing it through the guise of a museum. And that's, and that's way it's so much fancier. Yeah, it is very cool. Very exciting. Uh, Happy Jesse's going to be doing it. I think we have another Jesse joining us from the Museum of Moving Image, who's a Romero guy. Uh, I'm not sure if we're going to have more guests than that, but we'll figure it out. We got a whole month to do it. So that's the big, exciting news up top. Now, Jesse, Horror lifestyle for you this week <laughs> includes getting COVID. <laughs> like what? So how many, I mean, how long has it been since COVID's been around and that you avoided it? Yeah, 29 months, I think. Um, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I've been, I was dodging it. And I and, and like, you know, not like living your life like a hermit either. Like you no, go no, to I, movies, you go, go to the movies. concerts. Yeah. yeah. I, and I'm, it's, it's, I mean, and I'm fine. Uh, I, it's, I feel okay actually uh, i'm actually like, weekend at bernie's in right <laughs> now every is, they use the ai yeah. for the mark hamill ai to get me to say all this stuff now mm-hmm. uh you're just typing it into a into a thing um and then i'll get the performance credit anyway uh yeah i'm feeling actually feeling okay but um it really just kind of feels like a cold with a, a little bit of extra fever stuff I got the paxlovid <laughs> chilling out in my isolation booth in the, in my apartment trying not to give it to my wife and kid i'm it's just torturing me because the real the real horror of the situation is not knowing when i or where i got it because yeah. like you said I, i've been going to movies and going to concerts and i wear a mask at, at when i'm in indoor stuff and i you do I, we yeah, saw I, we saw the black phone together this very wednesday which yes. which can you imagine the indignity of getting covid <laughs> while watching the black phone <laughs> And it's, po- I mean, like, so the the two things that it's likely I, I got it either on my way to or doing were either seeing the black phone on Wednesday or going to see Phoebe Bridgers on Tuesday. And the Tuesday thing was the Phoebe Bridgers show was outside, but crowded. And I was not wearing a mask. because we So, like, outside. you have to do the calculus of, like, outside plus positive yeah. factor. Yeah. Crowded, yeah. Negative yeah. factor. Does that, you know, does a crowded outdoor show... Is it better right. to be in a less crowded indoor show? Like, right, no exactly. Idea. And then yeah. they have we- the weird, even weirder thing is like, I mean, granted, I was wearing a mask, so like, it, it, it's possible I just didn't give it to. But like, I saw the black phone with you, and you as yet are not sick. Yeah, and I can, I've tested a couple times since you have just to be sure, <laughs> yeah. and I'm good. Uh, and my wife and kid were with me at Phoebe Bridgers, and uh, they have so far not tested positive. So there's no clues about where I could say, oh, well, it's probably this or that. And I don't know what else. Like, I started getting symptoms on, like, late Thursday night. So I don't think it was anything later than Wednesday night that I could have gotten it. So I don't know. I mean, I could have guessed I could have gotten it earlier, maybe. Maybe I'm, I wasn't doing anything. On some... Anyway, it's, that's, just my, that's just my personal torture to puzzle out 
was it the black phone was it phoebe bridgers i love phoebe bridgers the the her music uh and stuff i had a great time at the show uh even though my child was not that into it uh but so i don't want to blame her yeah, so i'm not gonna, a lot I'm, for like a six-year-old at a <laughs> phoebe bridgers show <laughs> no no she liked the heim show we took her to or like okay. maybe she enjoyed the people wearing skeleton outfits or something she was like <laughs> my she's she was like she and my wife were like looking at what line to get into while i was investigating if there was another line and she was like are you sure this is the line and and my mom or my her mom marissa was like there's yeah it's like because of the skeletons i know can technically help because of the skeletons she's like why does that make you sure she was she was like it's like i don't know if it's like, really just because they're skeletons am I here. being recruited into the skeleton yeah. army what is happening yeah what does this mean like that drill tweet incredible yeah. <laughs> um but so i don't want to blame phoebe bridgers uh and i feel like there were already people passing out at the phoebe bridgers show there's like emts everywhere because it was just hot 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 it wasn't no it was actually pretty nice out um uh, but it was, I guess, the show was hot, hot, hot. The hot, the show was, it was, it was coming in hot Phoebe. emotionally. Yeah, I think really what I heard was that uh, there were people who got in line. This is a paid show, so you were get, if you had a ticket, you were getting. In. Oh boy, I know all about paid yeah. show problems at Brick, dude. It's yeah, <laughs> well, it was paid, but people still got online the night before to be close to her. That's psychotic. Uh, so okay. there were like some, I assume, I don't want to stereotype, but like definitely Gen Z girls um who had been on sydney oh that's like our big demographic (laughs) yeah be careful (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) there i don't mean look they got good taste in music that's for sure i love phoebe bridges but like there definitely were people who were online for 12 hours in the hot sun and then like phoebe came on and they just like i don't know passed out from like emotions or not or be or dehydration or both some of them were just like raptured and their clothes just appeared on the ground (laughs) and they were just gone (laughs) right right that's what it seemed like they're really like the show stopped it twice uh i saw so you were at the the prospect park one yeah there were there was tuesday and wednesday and i was that's funny because i saw people my buddies went to the one at forest hills oh yeah yeah and she she definitely stopped the show there at least once based on a tweet i saw yeah of, you know people love to i don't want to say virtue signal but people love to be like oh like it's so nice that this artist stopped the show it's like yeah it's kind of standard behavior for me like i don't i don't i think it's great and it's good that it happens but every time i see a tweet that goes like a billion views because someone stopped a show to give someone water it's like yeah okay yeah it's yeah a good thing <laughs> but yeah I don't know. It, is, it is yeah i i know what you mean because it was it did kind of feel like I think it, it does sound more, it seems more pointed to us now because of, was it Travis Scott or yeah, whatever? The Travis where they Scott just were like, let where, him die. Yeah. Uh, like, yeah it didn't know, happen exact word. Um, yeah, I, yeah. He yeah. said it. Well, according to some friends on Facebook, it was a satanic conspiracy that he was. <laughs> Jesus. We should probably uh, believe that. So in light, this is a preview of our next episode. In light of loving Phoebe Bridger's music and not wanting to blame my nice uh, experience there on, blame, blame the COVID on that. I will be blaming the black phone going forward. As much as it seems like I probably didn't get there because you're you're okay. I will be officially blaming the black phone for my coronavirus. Well, the movie gave infection. me some sort of disease. I don't know if it was COVID. <laughs> to be clear, we've seen the black phone. We're talking about it next week. I almost did an emergency episode where we do it a, a week ahead of time <laughs> to warn people because the hype on this movie for some fucking reason, it's all it's got that like baked in i think it was south by southwest or wherever it was baked in festival hype which is like classic case of i knew to be wary because it's a horror movie that debuted at a festival that has a hundred percent 
And that just always doesn't really pan out, generally speaking. Yeah. And I think that number is going to drop like a stone, but maybe I'm wrong. I know the trades. Not a good the movie. trades were into it. Yeah, I, I'm still, I'm still in my in my sickness. I've been weekly typing. Try, I've been like laboring over my pan of this movie that run on Paste Magazine's website sometime this week. Uh, so be on the lookout for that. I did not like this movie either. I think I liked it. You know just a scotch more than you did but i we were laughing it at quite, it throughout yes. let's be yeah. clear it's yes. not a it's not a good movie it's not good i didn't like and it it's at all. currently still as of recording has 100 percent on rotten tomatoes ahead of its friday release the the embargo and the, the screening i think is tuesday night so maybe there'll be uh it'll drop but I, i'm not trying to be mean i mean i don't like generally don't like scott derrickson and movies He's a pretty obnoxious as fuck online, and I'm afraid of talking about this movie on Twitter because of that. So I'll just keep it on the podcast, and we'll talk yes. about it next week. Uh, the Black Phone, beware. I, we didn't like it at all, but you know, I'm not mad if a horror movie that's quote-unquote an original does well. So see it, I guess? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what I want to say. I didn't like it, but you can support it. And the new flesh is behind you. Yes, it um, might it might give you coronavirus, but who cares? Yes, the movie may give you coronavirus, but the real um, the real victim of Jesse having coronavirus is listeners of the podcast because uh, in what I would in a, in, a, in something I'm going to go ahead and call dereliction of duty, Jesse has not seen Lightyear yet, <laughs> so we cannot do all the box. Well, I guess we could do the box office prognosticating. Uh, of like all the wrong lessons Disney's going to learn from this movie not doing very well, but also it's doing fine. The point that you made, um, it made fifty million instead of like the seventy that was projected or whatever, and it still probably has what eighty something worldwide total. It's, and it's like the only thing for a couple. I guess Minions is coming, but like it's probably yeah, going to hold up. Okay. You know, to me, this movie. I I, I want to talk about it on a Patreon episode when Jesse sees it. Um, I think Jesse should send Disney an email as if he's like a Make-A-Wish kid and says <laughs> that he has COVID and that he can't see it in the theater and maybe they'll give him a Disney debut screener link. For <laughs> Which I'll, I'm, I'm perfectly... Uh, COVID isolation is actually the ideal circumstances for them for you to watch a Disney debut link because they have language that, se- that literally says for their screeners, like, don't watch this with an earshot of anyone else. Don't yeah. let anyone else I in do. your household watch it with you. If yeah, you're watching, I threw, my, like, I threw my wife out on the street when I watched Deep Water. <laughs> I'm watching fucking like Diary of a Wimpy Kid, the cartoon, <laughs> and and I have to be like, oh, but make sure my child doesn't see this cartoon that I'm watching. <laughs> that's like for eight year olds. <laughs> like it would it would it would constitute a violation of trust. It's just so it's crazy. But yeah, it's perfect for watch for COVID. I could just watch it by myself in my little office. Also, so. it feels like you should be able to watch this movie on Disney Plus, as apparently much of America seemed to think you could because yes. it didn't do very well. And as the point everyone I'm sure is is surely making in all the box office articles, Disney has. 100% prime their audience to expect things like this on Disney Plus. They made that conscious fucking decision to put all their resources and marketing and energy into yeah, the the next what was it? 3 or 2 Pixar movies that debuted on uh Disney Plus during the pandemic. Yeah. It was Luca, it was Turning Luca, Red, Soul and Turning Oh, Soul, Red, it yeah. was 3. Okay. Yeah. Um and, you know, arguably a couple of those were like in the pandemic or not even arguably they were. And like, that's a good move. And like, that was a smart move. But turning red was the point I've made this on this. I've made this point on this podcast. 
on the Patreon episode, I made it on the box office podcast, um, the BO Boys. But Turning Red was like a turn, like a, t- a turning point for Disney Plus, where they they made a call that this movie that movie would have made I don't know hundred at least uh, worldwide you know 150 200 300 who knows it was a movie that was critically beloved people seem to like it everyone apparently watched on disney plus you know blah blah blah. you know i say all that to say disney decided we're gonna put these things on disney plus turning red was like a it was past the point of they should have been doing that you know it was this is over covid covid's not over but people are going to the movies again and they made a call to put that thing on disney plus and that was an actual movie, I would argue. And Lightyear, to me, as some, I have seen it. I didn't care for it. It's definitely not. I'm not the target audience, but also I kind of am because they're they're definitely trying to get people my age who grew up with uh, Toy Story to care about this. But this movie has the energy of like, remember, was it maybe was this a specifically '90s thing, Jesse, when Disney would do those Direct not off. Yeah, straight to video, not mm-hmm. knockoff sequels, but they were like straight to video and knockoff in the sense that, yeah, the talented, the talent involved in the theatrical production is not here. The voices might be different. Sometimes they weren't. Sometimes they were the same. But like, yeah, they were done by the TV division. Like, they yeah, were, exactly. I mean, not not to you know bag on the animators who were just doing their job, but like it wasn't from the theatrical division, which where there's yeah. a lot of money and time and everything. It was like growing up to me, that was like a staple. Like there was Aladdin, yeah. the theatrical movie, and then there was Return of Jafar, and even another one called what Prince of Thieves, oh, Aladdin and the King of Thieves, yeah. Aladdin and the King of Thieves. There's two, three of those. There was Lion King, and then eventually there was Lion King one and a half. Yeah, and then two I'm pretty and, sure. And, yeah, and there's there two was and a, one and a half. There's two and one and a half, and I think there's even a two and a half, maybe. Um, there's there's a ton of them, uh, and this feels way more akin to one of those than like a big screen Pixar movie. So for this one to be the one that they're like, it's a, kind of a canary in a coal mine, and it's like the wrong. It, they're gonna learn all the wrong messages from this one bombing. The lesson in in my eyes is. Yeah, this is like you ringing, you know, ringing the towel a little too much. Nobody cares about Lightyear in this way. The whole like, no, this isn't based on the toy. It's based on the real character that the toy is based on. No, it's a, it's actually the movie that Andy saw when he was a kid that got him into toys. Like they're just trying so hard to bend over backwards to like explain away why this movie needs to exist. And spoiler alert, it like doesn't. It's not a very good movie for any reason. Um, uh, and we'll talk about that when Jesse sees it. But as far as the box office stuff goes, Disney's at fault for why this did as poorly as it did. A. B. This movie was never going to perform like a Toy Story movie because it's like off. As I said, it feels like a off-brand Disney straight-to-video version of a Toy Story thing. It's like a branding exercise more than like a sequel. And I just am, I, I can't wait for Disney to be like, well... All of our stuff goes on Disney Plus now because that's what people want. And they're yeah. going to learn all the wrong dumb things. That's what I think. Yeah, it's 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 a shame because this does seem like so, it probably would have been better received on Disney Plus, too. Yes, I guess because like, people wouldn't have had the same it, expectations. It feels like it should be there. And that it, it is kind of damning it a little. But I yeah. So what? It's true. Uh, anyway, you know who's in that movie? Taika Watiti. And you know what Taika Watiti said this week? Uh, he said some stuff about his new Star Wars movie and how it will... By the way, this is bits and pieces. And uh, Taika Waititi's Star Wars movie will reject 
pre-existing characters and origins and quote expand the world can you believe this jesse um i'll read all of the quotes in a second but how funny is it that we're disney is just vacillating between uh well you know this ain't your daddy's star wars everybody this is ryan johnson's the last jedi fuck the past and then that didn't no one liked that or even though it did well and is well received by a lot of people they let the toxic fans say we hate that and then they went back and said wait this is your daddy's star wars here are all the characters you like and now it seems like they're going right back the other way again it's just so silly to me anyway here's what he said look i think for the star wars universe to expand it has to expand this is that's a real quote I don't think that I'm any use in the Star Wars universe making a film where everyone's like, oh, great. Well, that's the blueprints of the Millennium Falcon. Oh, that's Chewbacca's grandmother. That all stands alone. That's great. Wow. Really damning the hand that feeds you, right? Um, (laughs) All that stands alone. That's great. Though I would like to take something new and create some new characters and just expand the world. Otherwise, it feels like it's a very small story. Okay. Couldn't agree more. Didn't Disney try that approach and everyone said, no. And then they went back and did it the other way. And people still (laughs) said, no. And now they're going back. And I mean, I mean, what is, what is the Disney era or what is the Disney plus era? But this is your daddy star Wars again. Yeah. 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 It's true. Um, I mean, I feel like if it's also just a product of how publicly all this stuff plays out, I feel like, in the past, in the I mean, this is a long time in the past, but like pre-internet or even early internet, there would be a little more feeling like, like oh, yes, yeah, some of these are going to be really tied to the old movies and some of them are going to be kind of new. But now if there's that horrible feedback loop of like, we like this, we don't like this, we like this. Like it's, it just, and then people commenting on whether, you know, Disney is listening to the fans or listening to the toxic fans or ignoring the fans or whatever. And they make a whole screen movie about that. For yeah. Again, you make a whole screen movie about it and you just like, you know, it just, even for someone like me who really loves star Wars, it kind of makes me sick of star Wars just because, you know, it's something that's over discussed. I would say. Uh, I feel like, I don't know. This is my feeling on Taika Waititi enjoyed him when he was like a, quir- a quirky indie guy doing shit, like hunt for the wilder people. And now that he's in everything I've ever seen and has a hand in every big budget, everything I'm getting, I'm getting Taika with uh, Taika with TT fatigue. And it really crops up in, but in, in light year, because he's very annoying and just like, doesn't need to be there. And it's like, is this, this the guy, this is the guy who's the guy now. I I don't know. Uh, are you excited for Taika doing Star Wars? Do you did you like Ragnarok? Are you? Uh, I like Ragnarok a lot. Thunder? Actually, okay, okay. I'm excited about Love and Thunder just because they see that seems... first trailer is bad. Am oh, I, I thought wrong? it was. Fu- no, I thought it was. Funny. I've seen it maybe um, just because I've seen it a hundred times. You've seen but, it. I've seen it yeah. so many times that it may, like there was a brief period where I was seeing like the same four trailers. It's just like awkwardly so cut, and like I don't think the jokes land, and I therefore it just like it kind of like lands with a thud to me. And it just feels very disconnected. And it's like, oh, yeah, here's Natalie Portman. And everyone gets excited. It's kind of, it's, it reminds me of that what we were talking about with CinemaScore and Matt Patch is saying, if a movie delivers in the last 15 minutes, or people will just remember that and be happy. Same thing with the trailer for Thor Love is Thunder. The trailer is kind of meandering and weird. And then it just ends with this big moment of Natalie Portman. And everyone's like, I'm buying a ticket. I'm there. Uh, that's how I feel about that. Yeah. I mean, I like, I like, I feel like he's actually one of those guys who I don't mind. Though as much as I did, I enjoyed Hunt for Wilder People. A lot of the movies really funny and sweet. Um, 
but I don't mind him doing big blockbuster movies because he's not one of those guys where I'm like, ah, oh, dude, you're wasting your time. Even Ryan Johnson, whose Star Wars movie I really loved, there was a feeling of like, ooh, I hope he doesn't like. Like, I would love to see his trilogy, and also would love for him not to spend twelve years <laughs> making a Star Wars oh, trilogy. Great. You got your <laughs> wish on that. Yeah, yeah. Part. Um, but with TT, I'm I'm not so in, enamored of him that I would think he's wasting his time by doing a Thor movie. Like, I think he. I just kinda don't really that stuff. see. But what yeah, am I, I missing mean, with like the like what visual panache has he showed that's like let this guy do star wars i i just don't see it well, i know, they don't that, really I, care about I know that's not what they care about yeah. i know <laughs> that's what i care about you know yeah yeah i think they think he'll you know he'll probably like create some like fun silly alien character i feel like stuff, he's an, which, yeah on time ahead of schedule yeah. and he's got he's so funny he talks yeah. like that <laughs> um and you know with like korg and stuff and thor i feel like they think oh he'll be, he'll have like a droid that's really funny or something um he's not like you know it's not like my most anticipated thing um but you know whatever <laughs> right on that's all all well and good uh i i'm all for him saying hey we have to just do more you know like i 100 percent agree telling having a, your movie be star wars and set in this amazing future dystopia or not even just dystopia i guess <laughs> uh this um, uh, this future world and then only telling the story of like one family like the skywalkers like it's it is inherently stupid when you have this quote-unquote expanded universe already there for you right like yeah. is there ever has there ever been talk of doing like the really nerdy expanded universe stories as movies like why isn't that in conversation like why do they have to just uh, keep repeating most, all this shit they mostly do i mean they do fold that stuff in is the thing like okay. i feel like they did thrawn which i don't, I don't even know what that is because i don't read those stuff that stuff when i was a kid um but they did like some is that stuff like where like, the rosario dawson character comes from and shit no no she's from clone wars um, but yeah, they 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 have in integrated some characters from that stuff into Clone Wars, and then I think now into the live action stuff. I always think it's kind of weird with people like, oh, why don't they just adapt this like obscure fans only <laughs> you know, like novel well, or whatever? Yeah, I guess. But like, I, isn't that approach kind of what the Marvel universe is doing now in Phase whatever, where it's just like, yeah, multiverses, like, and that's like a whole series of, of like, I know they they didn't do Planet Hulk or anything, but like, wasn't it like talked about that they might? Like well, in like, there's elements of Planet Hulk in Ragnarok or whatever. Mm, yeah, I mean, with 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 Marvel, just like, yeah, what you're adapting in the first place is the comics. I just have never, maybe just because I'm vaguely disdainful of the expanded universe stuff, I'm always kind of like, yeah, that stuff doesn't matter. <laughs> like, Are you disdainful because you've read it and think it's bad, or you just haven't read it and therefore... Oh, because yeah, I'm not very interested in it. I know, like, yeah. I know I have some of the comics from the current comics that some people got me that they were pretty cool. But, and... like, there were, like, there's probably... Are there, like, hundreds of paperback books? Yeah, there's, like, so many. And they're all, like, kind of decan... Besides, like, people get mad because they were, like, decanonized, even though Lucas at the time was like, you can do whatever you want, but, like, none of this is gonna be officially canon until I decide I, you know, it's like, right. I'm gonna contradict whatever I want. Uh, but yeah, so maybe it's, that's just part of it. Is I feel like it's that's all part of the like fanboy thing of like, oh, just do, just do these awesome novels that I loved when I was twelve. And it's like I don't know, dude. Like I would just rather that's I'll say that for even though I'm not like a huge huge fan of Watiti, I would rather see what he's doing with Star Wars than like have someone like faithfully adapt some fucking novel. I'm all <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. I, I hear you. I'm I'm for new characters and new stories, but 
I, I just am not. Like, I, I feel like I can already tell what the Taiki Taika characters are going to be like. You know what I mean? Like, he has such like a stock sense of humor that I worry that's what it's going to be. But I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Who uh, knows? We'll see. Uh, this is interesting, I guess. HBO Max we knew was developing an it prequel after those movies did very well, or at least the first one did very, very well. Uh, so Variety reported back in March that the TV series Welcome to Dairy will begin in the 1960s and the time leading up to the events of It Part 1, the movie from 2017. And now we know that the writer's room has opened up on the show and it's actually being written and it's actually moving forward. And uh, writer Shelley Mules tweeted about, you know, being in the writer's room, which is like how everyone knows now it's happening. So I thought it'd be fun to throw out some pitch ideas for an It prequel that nobody asked for. (laughs) Um, I'm going to go ahead and say we're going to get the Pennywise origin story that like the Rob zombification of 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 it. We're going to see his abusive parents yelling <laughs> about flappy ass tits <laughs> and we're going to feel empathy and sympathy for Pennywise. Do you have a different take? Um, no, I mean, that's that's seems like yeah, birth of Pennywise. It's like such a give me or like maybe other people trying like the penny like it comes comes in cycles right so like maybe there were other people who fight tried to fight him off but doesn't that seem anticlimactic but that that never seems to be a concern with these with these kind of projects you know what i really wish that they would tell that this universe would create more characters (laughs) to um really expand the world of of dairy in order to expand the world of it you have to expand jesse yes yes Um, oh wow i'm reading this taika watiti's doing this that was so weird (laughs) I'm just kidding. He's not. But uh, the tale centers in the town of Derry, Maine, where a group of friends called the Losers Club battle Pennywise to kill a clown first as kids and then 27 years later as adults. I believe they, the Losers Club actually asked him about, like, are you going to do more It stuff? And he, Stephen King flatly said no. So, like, this is not anything that Stephen King is, like, interested in doing, you oh. know? Yeah. Uh, so that makes me less interested because it means he's not involved. But last week, I believe... Didn't we do some fan casting for Harley Quinn and Joker 2 before we even knew that that was actually what was happening? I think we were just talking about the cryptic Instagram with the script that said Joker for And we were like, who is it going to be? And we all said our piece and none of us guessed the actual answer, which apparently is Lady Gaga, who's in talks to be Harley Quinn. In jo- the Joker sequel, which is being described as a record scratch musical, <laughs> uh, how do you feel about this entire sentence that I just said? And that <laughs> Lady Gaga's in it. It's a musical. Were you interested before? Are you disinterested now? Are you interested now? When you were disinterested before? <laughs> I just don't. I just don't. I've been, I'm, my head is spinning. Um, I like. I think the. I mean. I think. Uh... I'm not that into Lady Gaga as a movie star, although I kind of had to give it up for her for House of Gucci. I was like, all right, fair enough. <laughs> you're well, like, she's dude, the only one. You're like, doing your thing. She's doing her thing in a movie where it seems like everyone's giving a performance in a different movie. Yes. She was She was giving the performance in a movie that I wanted to watch. Yes, she was doing, she was just, she was just really giving it, uh, giving it her all. Um, you know, I'm very attached to the Harley Quinn played by Margot Robbie. And like, there's even a musical sequence in Birds of Prey 
so it does kind of bum me out the idea that like Todd Phillips, who seems like the kind of guy who would have nothing but contempt for musicals because he has nothing but contempt for most things. Yeah. And he, uh, hate, he famously hates fish yeah. after directing a documentary uh, concert film about fish. Really? I didn't even, I didn't know that he, wow. See, what a oh yeah. Prick, he what directed, a prick this guy is. He directed, uh, what's that fish documentary called? Bittersweet Motel from okay. like 1990. Oh God. Um, I don't know. I've seen it. And like, it's very clear that like it's directed by someone who does not like the band. It's from 2000. Uh, if, if you're a fish fan and you're listening, and you've never seen Todd Phillips documentary about fish. Seek it out for sure. He anyway. just seems so like nasty and like, uh, you know, I don't know. So like the idea of him doing a musical, I mean, I, as so many people have pointed out, including my friend Nathaniel, he was the first one to point it out to me. And then other people tweeted this. If, joker is phillips doing taxi driver and king of comedy this so this is doing him might be him doing new york new york which yeah. would be really funny because that movie is like extremely off-putting when one of the greatest directors of all times is doing it so like imagine some bozo well off-putting is kind it. of his whole bag right <laughs> right it's just but, but then at the other hand like as much as i appreciate the deep cut of like oh you're not going to do an homage to like goodfellas you're going to do like new york new york as I don't really trust Phillips to do that well because I think he's a fucking asshole. Um, I mean, but it makes me more interested, certainly, in a Joker sequel than it would have been possible to be <laughs> in general. I mean, I don't know. I feel like all the all the edgelord dipshits who liked Joker so much, I don't, I don't think they deserve their own Harley Quinn because I think those are some of the same people who hate Birds of Prey for it being, like, too cute or whatever, even though I, I think that movie is like a total delight. So like, you know, whatever. It's just like a defensive fan thing where I'm like, no, I kind of like this other version of Harley Quinn. And like, this is going to be used as a cudgel by assholes <laughs> because this is going to be like the serious Harley Quinn. Um, I'm not, you know, but whatever. I mean, what, what were you talking about? Like, we're not going to go see this movie. Like we're, we, we for sure are <laughs> no matter how terrible it looks. Um, uh, but I'm just never hopeful about whatever Phillips is up to. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better myself. Loathe it, but we'll be there. Um, <laughs> no, I, you know, it, the movie was always going to exist because of how much money it made. Uh, so I'll take the weirdo version of it over like a, you know, typical superhero sequel or whatever they, you know, whatever yeah. could have happened. I'll take the weird attempt at making a probably 150 to 200 million dollar musical or like maybe that's all a misnomer and it's not gonna it's gonna have like a musical sequence you yeah know? Like, that is true that there are often things described as musicals that have two two songs in them or something yeah so we're watching and waiting on uh lady gaga as harley quinn and joker the joke i made that actually went viral was you know lady gaga's trying so hard for an oscar the uh for for her like leading performance she got pretty close with uh a Star is Born. Everyone thought she was going to win. She did not. Uh, then she did House of Gucci. Didn't even get nominated, I don't think. Or did she? Uh, no, she wasn't nominated for yeah. Gucci. No. Well, shameful. Uh, but the Academy said no twice. So she said, all right, enough playing games. Get me in a Joker movie. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only way to guarantee yourself an Oscar these days is to play the Joker or someone near near the Joker. Yes. Uh, so far, <laughs> so... only the Jokers win. So we'll see if she can get in there. Yeah. Yeah. For being a lady Joker. Uh, Ryan Johnson announced the title of Knives Out 2. I'll read his whole little tweet thread. Something I love about Agatha Christie is how she never tread water creatively. I think there's a misperception 
that her books use the same formula over and over, but fans know the opposite is true. It wasn't just settings or murder methods. She was constantly stretching this genre conceptually. Under the umbrella of the whodunit, she wrote spy thrillers, proto-slasher horrors, serial killer hunts, gothic romances, psychological character studies, glam travelogues. When I made Knives Out, that's what excited me about the prospect of making more mysteries with Daniel with uh, Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc, to emulate Christie and have every film be like a whole new book with its own tone, ambition, reason, uh, and reason for being, and of course, title. So his next case, Benoit Blanc's next case, the follow-up to Knives Out, is called Glass Onion. And it has a cool, trippy font, and it says uh, Glass Onion... A Knives Out Mystery. Uh, and the cast, if you didn't know, Daniel Craig is back and everyone else is new. It's Edward Norton, Janelle Monet, Catherine Hahn, Leslie Odom Jr., Jessica Henwick, a.k.a. Bugs from The Matrix Resurrections, Madeline Klein, don't know who that is, with Kate Hudson and Dave Bautista. Do you think that cast is anywhere near as good as the first cast? Yeah, um, sure. It's pretty I mean, good, but it's pretty solid. It's pretty solid, but like none of those names are like. I feel like when it was when it was initially casting, we kept being like, "Oh my god!" Like, who isn't in this movie? And then looking at it now, I'm like, "It's not that. It's not that impressive." I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what that um, is. I will say, I love Janelle Monae's music, and I don't. Me too. I don't think her like. I don't. So far, I haven't really been convinced by her as an actor. Yeah, me neither. And but Edward Norton being in it. Um, and Leslie Odom Jr. being in it, it's, He's it's like, not as, you know, I think it's, that's, uh, I'm excited for those. I mean, Edward Norton's like top build under Daniel Craig, which is exciting. Yeah. I, mean, uh, I don't know how the general public feels. I mean, Edward Norton's a fucking star. People like Edward Norton. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that movie will do, uh, let's say one quarter as well as Knives <laughs> Out, given the fact that it's going to be on Netflix in however many days after it. I feel like if they're this one, I mean, they, I feel like this this rumor circles circulates all the time. But I feel like for this one, there was some thought that they might agree to a forty-five yes, day. I think we talked uh, about that on the show. I think it is going to get some sort of theatrical exclusive window. I don't remember if it's that long, but I'm yeah, sure well, that's, I think that's, that's how it. long it needs to be to get into real chains. I think, um, oh, I don't, I I don't know. I don't know for sure. I think if they do 30, like cause most, they have done 30 before and they still get the big, no, thank you. It's weird because I feel like that is, I think we've talked about this before too. That still seems to be in place. Like I still seems like AMC is like, fuck you. We're not going to do 30 days for Netflix movies, even yeah. though they do, will sometimes do less now for other streamers. <laughs> I feel like there's some residual, uh, spite that says they won't they won't play stuff for for 30 days unless nicole kidman's in it and that they use right. on amazon yeah. and then yeah. you can sneak it in there and yeah it'll play for as long yeah as that's the want. thing i think they they have done it with other studios i just think with netflix for some reason they're more i don't know i'm not sure it's weird anyway i'm hoping it'll play real theaters and not it is i like the paris but that's it, it, not a, that's not a dignified theatrical release these days <laughs> yeah i would like to see knives out with my amc a list like yes. any other movie Yes. Um, I wanted to mention that Tribeca has come and gone, and I saw pretty much. I I think I saw all the Midnighters, and even some that weren't Midnighters that are kind of horror adjacent. So there will be a Patreon episode where Jesse and I talk about what we saw there, including the centerpiece film from Jason Blum. It's a Blumhouse production. It's B.J. Novak's writer director debut called Vengeance, 
And I think Jesse and I both didn't like it, but I liked it a little less. <laughs> um, so we'll talk about that. And I'll talk about everything else that I saw. Actually, every midnight selection that I watched was good. I have There's, to go see if I can still watch them on my platform because I'll give you the I didn't titles. Watch any, well, yeah, yeah, I didn't watch any of the midnight ones, and, and I feel like I screwed. Well, up. usually <laughs> they're bad, so I don't blame you. But this year, all three that were actually in the midnights, there might be a few others, but Attachment, which is a like Jewish lesbian horror film, it's great. There's Husera, which is like a horror film about like being pregnant and becoming a mother. It's fantastic. And then there's A Wounded Fawn from Travis Stevens, who did the movie I love so much and have gone to bat for um, The Girl on the Third Floor and the movie I liked a lot less called Jacob's Wife. This is much more like Girl on the Third Floor than Jacob's Wife, and I loved it. That's called A Wounded Fawn. And then uh, everything... Oh, there's another one called Family Dinner. That was the one midnight that I didn't think was very good. It's like a pretty slow burn you know exactly how it's going to end horror movie which i didn't appreciate and there's something called rounding which is about like being a nurse uh in you know this unforgiving thankless haunting industry you know being like an overburdened healthcare professional but the movie gets completely derailed and is not good but yeah those are all things we'll talk about on the patreon uh there's some more scream six casting news they cast like four three people Four people I'd never heard of, but it turns out I had heard of one of one of them. Josh Segarra plays Lance on The Other Two, which is a Comedy Central show that is now an HBO Max show that I love. So I'm excited for Josh Segarra. But new cast members include Jack Champion, who apparently is in Avatar The Way of Water, which is a real movie that's coming out. Uh, Leanna Liberato from The Beach House. And Devin Nakoda from Ghost Rider, as well as Josh Segarra. So there's some new victims for Ghostface in this movie that I'm now referring to as Ghostface in Manhattan because we know it's supposed to be set in New York City and uh, that movie's coming along it's going to be out next year Scream 6 baby we don't know the title yet this is interesting on that note as well Emma Roberts says quote I feel like I'm I wasn't done with Scream speaking with Jed Dread Central this week she was asked uh, which horror franchise she'd most like to join she said, I don't know. Maybe I'd go back to Scream. I feel like I wasn't done with Scream. I will say, you know, of course, we'd love to see that character back. But that would kind of undo one of the best endings in a, in a Scream movie, don't you think? If they just brought back Emma Roberts for like just because she wants yes. to be back in it. Yes, uh, that would be lame. It would be <laughs> super love, lame. I love her, but it would be lame. I think she just wants to get in on something that's a hit. You it know? Is, <laughs> she was yeah. in the only non-hit Scream movie, so I feel like she yeah. wants to. And honestly, she has one of the best scenes in the entire franchise, I will say. I love the reveal Emma Roberts scene in Scream 4. Great movie. Uh, speaking of great movies, let's transition right into, you know, a tough movie to talk about because we're like the fifth podcast I know of that did this, that's talking about this movie in the past few months. So I just thought it would be funny to also do it because I'm also watching it and, you know, in anticipation of the new evil dead, evil dead rise, which is coming this year on HBO max. And, um, in anticipation of the evil dead video game, which is now out and I have, and I haven't put a dent in yet. So if you're listening and you want to play evil dead, it's a multiplayer game online, PS five, Xbox, PC, it's all interconnected. It's okay. We can play. Uh, 
So we're talking about the Evil Dead original flavor, OG, 1981. Jesse, I'm assuming you've seen it more than once. I would like to know your relationship (laughs) with this movie when you saw it for the first time, if you remember. And um, if you think it's like a horror classic, like... It it is you know heralded as <laughs> I'm not sure I don't think I wouldn't call it a no I'm just I'm trying to think of like my contrarian Evil Dead yeah like the funniest thing on earth to me is like going to like Citizen Kane on Letterboxd and finding people give it like two and a half yeah. stars and I'm shit. impressed like, yeah I don't know <laughs> I don't know about this guy uh yeah I would love to this is actually the reason I was excited to do this is because um I the Evil Dead movies are so like seem like are such a vivid piece of my like development as a horror fan Ooh. and not because i'm so like you're not like i have some kind of i really wouldn't call myself an obsessive with them or anything i you know i'm not saying oh that, that, they're not movies that i know front to back every line i know a lot of lines from army of darkness of course but the first evil dead i don't even know how i had heard of it uh, i used to read like roger ebert's book of books of reviews and i remember reading his review of evil dead 2 I don't know yes. if that that was how I heard of it, maybe even when I was you know, 12 or 13. But when I was first getting to the age where I was like renting VHS tapes on my own in the summer, this is good. This is a good. Also, they kind of feel like summer to me for this reason, even though they're not like summer movies. In that they're very sunny. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're, such, they're just fun beach reads. Uh, but no, I, it reminds me of my summer vacations where I never had a summer job until I was like a senior my, after my senior year in high school. So I was always kind of bumming around my summer vacations. I never went to camp or anything. Um, so like, I would, I don't even know the exact summer, but probably the summer 92 or 93, probably 93. I was like my, you know, stuff I would do would be, you know, go to the movies, go see Jurassic Park a few times, go see Jurassic Park a few times, go see with my dad, go see with my mom, go see with my friends. Um, I'm assuming that's all true right there. Yeah. I, well, I think I don't know. Actually, I don't think I saw it with my friends. (laughs) I didn't have that many friends when I was 13. Um, but I did. I, yeah, I definitely saw it, but uh, a bunch of times, but I uh, I would, you know, go to the comic book shop on Wednesdays and get like Batman comics and go and read them in my parents air conditioned bedroom. Who needs friends friends when you got. Yeah. Who needs when you you got the Batman. Yeah. Yeah, That's what what's better than that. And I would also sometimes ride my bike to the video store that was like easiest to ride my bike to, which is called the drive in movie store. Very <laughs> misleading name. Yep. Uh, I was so confused to me as, as a kid because I was like, I had heard about the store before I ever went there. I was like, oh, it's like, is it like the bank where you drive through and you they shove, you, or shove your VHS in a tube? And send right, it to right, right. <laughs> it's not. It was just like named that because video stores in that time were just like searching for movie signifiers. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they yeah. have to have some kind of, you know, popcorn video or whatever. So this was the driving movie store. It was like a little bit mangy. It's like a, it was a cool independent store. There were only two of them in, in my in my town. In my town and the next town over each had one. And they were like they were like the kind of video store where they definitely had like a back room with porno, you know? Like not Ooh, the be- <laughs> you have to you have to walk through the beads. Yeah, you have to or not even the beads. There was like, you know, a cowboy door and saloon doors, I feel like, or something. Wow, saloon uh, doors. <laughs> I love I might, saloon I, doors. I might, be just, I might be making that up uh, in my mind's eye, but I there was some kind of a door, like a swinging door to go into the porno section, which I I will say I've never been in. I did, though my friends and I did rent the movie Femalian from outside the porn section. Ooh. <laughs> um, Femalian. Yeah, it's uh, silly. Um, but like, so they, you know, they they were like also the video store that, in case I'm not making them sound um, 
it's reputable enough they like would rent faces of death you know like that there was that type oh of hell story. yeah <laughs> a true video nasty yeah yeah and i not again this is not about me renting your faces of death but i so i would go there and i and they would you know i would go and rent tapes there by myself during the day and i'm not sure what got me interested in like watching gory movies but there was like a certain type of horror movie i really wanted to see a lot of and that was like gory but sort of tongue-in-cheek i don't know if it was just because i didn't want to watch something that was really really intense or i just i don't know i was just very attracted to like the style of like gory but silly but like in a clever way or whatever i feel like i re- my first crack at this was like renting return of the living dead because it was supposed to be like yes funny and, and like, like i feel the like I 85 one yeah yeah uh, like and it was it, i didn't know it, it didn't like connect with me that much but it was a lot of it was like zombie movies like i i rented light of the living dead and was that was not exactly what i was looking for but like dawn of the dead was closer um so in that period i was like i gotta rent evil dead and evil dead 2 so I watched, I think I watched them in order. Uh, again, I might have just heard about them from Roger Ebert. So I watched The Evil Dead, and or it's just Evil Dead, right? The remake. Uh, no, it is The Evil Dead. I always get confused which one's The and which one's has the definite article. The Evil Dead. Um, I watched it and I thought I like thought it was kind of cool at the time. But it's funny watching it now to think that this was my reaction. But my reaction was sort of like, oh, this isn't like crazy or funny enough. <laughs> uh i think i was maybe expecting something a little more really like evil dead 2 army of darkness even though i hadn't seen those yet somehow it just had absorbed into me that like that's what this would be like and i don't know it's not that i found it boring i did i did like it but i was more into evil dead 2 which we'll talk about obviously on a subsequent episode um and then i hadn't really seen it in full until uh many years later i watched it pretty recently and i watched it again this morning while i was doing some stuff in my little isolation booth um so it's not like a movie i've seen dozens of times i've seen it like three times in full uh but it was still like that kind of movie it definitely kind of set me on a path of like that's the kind of horror movie i like and now there's lots of more kinds of horror movies i like i like some slow burn stuff i like way more slasher movies i would i'd like never seen a slasher movie until i was like 18 or 19 uh growing up but so it was, I don't know, it was like important to me to see like a, a horror movie that was like crazy and weird. You know what I mean? I don't know. It's just, and, yeah. and watching it again now, it's such a strange experience because it, like it's, it's I don't really find it scary in the same way that I find like Halloween is like genuinely scary or Texas Chainsaw is like genuinely unsettling. Um, but it does have like a kind of weird uh like it's very visceral <laughs> even though i don't find it like frightening really it's like it's because it's so just because of the effects they use and stuff it just it, it like has uh like i don't know i don't know it's very physical right <laughs> like it's not like you're rooting for the people to get killed but you do kind of like once they're turned you know it does kind of feel like that's what you're here to see is like the crazy goopiness of it um, even though the movie's not, I don't know. Again, it's like not that winking, which I guess when I was 13, I was like, why isn't there more winking and like irony and like crazy shots and stuff like that? Uh, even though now looking at it, I'm like, this is so well-directed and so like energetic and such a great, as you say, calling card for a director to say, here, this is the movie I can make with like no money. Um, 
but anyway, that's just all to say that it was like formative without being one of my like very favorites in a weird way, just because this I was in search of this very particular aesthetic that Evil Dead 2 was pretty much ended up being the, the thing I was actually looking for. <laughs> but Evil Dead was like a thing I had to watch on the way there. <laughs> Edgar Wright in this documentary that's on the very old DVD from like 2007 or something, he says, you know, about this movie. Horror movies are usually about people being picked off, and this one's specifically about a guy being picked on. <laughs> He's like, it's just Sam Raimi agon- antagonizing his friend from school. And like, I love that description of it because you kind of just got at that, like what this movie is about, really. Um, yeah, I love this movie. I have a very, you know, this movie I kind of credit with jumpstarting my foray into horror i'm sure i've talked about that on the show in the past i'm I'm not sure i think i have i've definitely talked about this on the videodrome episode of the best little horror house in philly last week uh because evil dead is definitely my horror origin story in terms of my neighbor who i used to watch movies with showed it to me when i was far too young probably like eight or something or like somewhere between six and ten let's say and i was mortified by the evil dead which is so funny because to me, you know, obviously low budget movie, I wouldn't say traditionally scary, but like when you're like an eight year old and you haven't seen much of this stuff. <laughs> oh yeah. It's really scary. Especially like the stuff that I find now, like super funny, but it, it's still unsettling. But like when I was a kid, the, uh, who is it? I forget her name. Is it Cher? No, Linda. I think it's Linda when she's just like possessed and just giggling and laughing the whole time. Yeah. Um, that used to like freak me the fuck out. I remember having like nightmares after that. So I was just transfixed by, and even though I was scared by seeing the evil dead for the first time as a way too young kid, it it, like, you know, led me to seek that shit out big time and like constantly want to see more. I don't know when I first saw evil dead too, but I'm sure it was many years later, but, um, you know, so that was like an early before I was like a f- actual film nerd with autonomy who could go rent his own stuff and research and read and find out about stuff like this. Evil Dead was still one of the first things I saw that really affected me. And I think that's great because, you know, that's what the movie's trying to do. It's just trying to be, uh, I believe the tagline is the ultimate experience in grueling terror. And like, it's fun that that effect really worked on me as an eight-year-old and i love that (laughs) um and i think the movie really does hold up especially as a as i mentioned a calling card for sam raimi who would go on to do you know the most iconic blockbusters of all time spider-man the the entire spider-man trilogy that has now kind of ushered in the modern era of superhero-dom and now sam raimi's back in that saddle sort of again with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, even though that's still very much a Marvel thing first and a Sam Raimi movie second, I would argue, and Jesse might argue against. Um, But yeah, Evil Dead's where it all began. And I guess I should, I can treat the listeners and Jesse to some history of this movie because I've read the, I've read Bruce Campbell's If Chins Could Kill, Confessions of a B-Movie Actor, which is wonderful. I've watched the DVD documentary, that's on the 2007 DVD, as I mentioned. I believe it's called One by One, We Will Take You, the untold saga of the Evil Dead, as well as the commentary that's on the Blu-ray and 4K UHD. It's the only commentary track I'm aware of. That's from 2009, and it features 
Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell, and producer Robert Tappert. Um, I couldn't recommend reading uh, If Chins Could Kill Enough. You get a lot of background on the early days of Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell and their buddies, including Robert Tappert, making, you know, Super 8 movies and, like, showing them at their college and, like, how the how that all led to them making or leading, you know, to wanting to make Evil Dead and how that came to be was kind of like a crude commercial thing where they're like, they would go to drive-in movie theaters to like research the type of movies that people liked. And, you know, they would go to like the two movies for $2 at the drive-in. This was before there was like, you know, indie art houses. So you, this is like that filled that gap for film nerds kind of. Um, And they like would, they would go to these drive-in movies and document people's reactions to the movie i think in the book i have this quote uh keep the pace fast and furious once the horror starts never let up the gorier the merrier became our (laughs) prime directive like they would sit at these movie theaters and assess like uh if a scene was too corny the people would like turn their brights on and wash out the screen and if the pacing was too slow they would honk their horns so they would like truly just sit there and figure out like what kind of movie would would work in this setting so they had an idea to do a prototype movie to prove themselves, you know, that they could actually make a movie, but also prove to investors that they, that they could do that and that they were capable of making a full length horror movie. And just because Raimi happened to be at Michigan state studying, you know, HP Lovecraft and stuff. And he was very impressed with like the Necronomicon or the book of the dead. So he just made like a rough concept of a short story where, a group of friends unwittingly dig up an ancient, an Indian burial ground and unleash horrific spirits. And in this, in the spring of 1978, they filmed what would become like this 32 minute or so short called within the woods that start, they shot it over a three day weekend for 1600 bucks. And that thing would be like what they would take around and show literally anybody who would like hear them. They would take it to filmmakers. They would take it to studios and agents and stuff. And they would just show it to anybody. And they first started by screening, arranging a screening at their former high school. And people loved it. And it's just so funny to hear how the, how this stuff all came together. Because it was so crude to me uh, to hear them be like, well, we knew the mo- type of movies that sell are horror. So we'll, we usually make all these slapstick things on our own Super 8s and play those. But we have to make a horror film. And they just kind of set out to do it for that reason. Cause like this is marketable and this will sell. And they had, you know, I love in the book, they detail how they would put on, they had to go buy suits and briefcases as if like, that was what was keeping them from getting their investment. Like they really just like, they're like thought they had to dress the part and walk around and kind of con people into giving them money. And this is as a potential investor, because they actually went like the official way with like, we're creating a business entity in order to make an investment platform for these investors. So they'll make their money back. So as a potential investor, the first thing you were treated to on page one was a huge warning with two skulls on it (laughs) that said, the securities offered by this document are highly speculative, will have no market and should be considered only by an investor who has no plans to resell the security and fully and adequately understands the risks involved and can afford to lose his entire investment. Uh, so they had to disclose anything that might go wrong for any reason. These were known as risk factors. We quit listing them after 11. It seemed embarrassing enough. They were <laughs> as follows. Uh, and translations included. New venture, quote, translation, 
We haven't done anything yet. Limited financial resources. It's a really low budget. Lack of distribution agreements. We have no real commitment from anyone. Reliance on management. Come hell or high water, investors were going to be stuck with us. Failure to engage certain key employees. We haven't hired a single person yet. Uh, liquidity of investment. As an investor, you were in for the long haul. You couldn't sell your share in this venture, even if it smelled like a stinker. Federal tax consequences. You can't write any of this off. No guarantee of completion. If we go over budget, we're screwed. Lack of diversification. We're only doing one movie, and it's a very specific genre. Production risk. Bad weather, bad planning, bad anything could and will shut us down. And conflict of interest in that we could do any other any other stuff at the same time. Makes you want to whip out the old checkbook, right? So it's just the unlikeliness of them having like this very official documentation to pitch people. Famously, Sam Raimi got a bunch of money from like this group of dentists who loved uh, you know, putting their money in investments in weird stuff. So like this movie was just crowdfunded before that was like an you know a thing that people do nowadays online and it's so influential it's funny because i think it's influential in that way and like how it was conceived and it's also influential in that it influenced the horror genre and it all you know for good and for bad i think it was uh joe bob briggs in the in the one by one we will take you documentary that in this hilariously timed bit that is right after Eli Roth talks about literally making, you know, his version of this movie with cabin fever. This is what Joe Bob Briggs has to say. Actually, this is Eli Roth talking first and then Joe Bob. Somehow seeing that Sam Raimi did it for me just made it possible that a guy like me that was really, really into horror movies could just go out in the woods, grab a camera, and make the bloodiest, most disgusting film you, they can. Recently, there was a movie, movie made called Cabin Fever, which is referential to it. When I was writing Cabin Fever, the single biggest influence was Evil Dead. I said, I want to take a 16-millimeter camera and go in the woods and make a total splatter film like Evil Dead. The great thing about Evil Dead is um, it's, it's gore... Um, combined with strong dramatic motivation um at the same time it's one reason that we have so many bad gore movies today is that um less talented filmmakers watch evil dead think oh i'm gonna do something like that and um they fail to come up with the inner dramatic motivations for the characters and then we just have a bunch of uh blood on the screen wow uh, Eli Roth death by, death by documentary editing <laughs> it's incredible that they have him they set him up to talk about cabin fever as it being influenced and then just immediately cut, take out the rug from under him being like yeah evil dead was in, was influential but it really influenced all the wrong people <laughs> and all the talentless idiots to make things but I think that's interesting and I, I will defend cabin fever to the day I die yeah, even, I like though, even though I don't like Eli Roth for the most part that's my easily my favorite Eli Roth thing and he's right and you know Evil Dead is the ultimate I think X you know I talked about when we talked about Ty West X how like that movie's a love letter to like you know making a low budget horror movie in the woods with your friends and like what is the Evil Dead if not the embodiment of that idea and kind of the start of that idea that would go on to influence you know an entire generation of horror filmmakers for sure. Um, and it is interesting because as, as 
you know, well-known now and influential now as the Evil Dead seems, there aren't a lot of, like, easy... I don't know, would you say that there's a lot of movies where you could say, you know, Kevin Fever is a great one, but, like, a great example, I mean, not a great movie. Though it's, I, I like it, too. Yeah, uh, Rider Strong, baby. <laughs> um, but, like, a lot of movies where you could say... I mean, like, Halloween, you could see so many movies. Uh, I kind of weirdly associate, like... Texas Chainsaw, Halloween, Evil Dead, and a few others like kind of grouped together. You know, they didn't come out that close together. Um, as being this like, you know, sort of ground laying groundwork for a bunch of different types of movies. Uh and you know, those Romero movies you can see their influence and in so much stuff. Evil Dead, I don't know. Like, are there that many? I think I think that they're he they're onto something saying that it influenced a lot of like not that talented filmmakers, because a lot of people will try to do their like, you know. There. Oh, this it's, is just going to be fun. Yes. Spl- make, trying to make the dumb movie I was hoping to watch when I was 13. That's just like it's, silly and yes, gory. It's and... the 1980s equivalent of like me making jackass videos in 2000. Yeah. <laughs> when yeah. jackass was on TV, you know, like it's just like anyone who saw this thought, oh, I could do that, which yeah. is like not to, it's kind of like a good thing and a bad thing. Like, yeah, that will lead to some incredible art. And that will lead to a bunch of horseshit too. Yeah. <laughs> and there, do you feel like there are many, I mean, maybe this is jumping ahead too much, but like, are there a lot of contemporary movies you would say, oh yeah, I can see the evil dead influence on it. Um, that's a great question. Um, I mean, aside from like, obviously the answer being like, drag me to hell or something. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, right. It's tough because I mean, yeah, a lot of movies definitely try to ape the Raimi aesthetic, right? Like I feel like I'm constantly referencing the word Raimi in reviews yeah. on of mostly of like shutter originals from like Indonesia. Like there's like <laughs> a certain type of filmmaker now. Uh it seems to be a lot of foreign filmmakers who are doing those like Raimi-esque angles. Yeah. I don't know why that is rather than I'm sure there's American people doing it too. I just haven't noticed. But that's a good question. I'll have to think more on it and uh give you a better answer on then on another episode. Um this movie's, you know, they conceived it to be a hundred fifty thousand dollar budget. They ended up spending like $500,000 on it. The script was like barely written. It was on 27 napkins. Uh, it's just, it's it's a crazy production to hear about. Uh, the the cast, you know, they were only supposed to be there for X many weeks. And once that designated number of weeks hit, the re- like the entire cast left. <laughs> so like they were stuck with just Bruce, which kind of explains the movie and like what it becomes, right? Because they basically just have Bruce and then a bunch of what they called fake Shemp's, which is like uh-huh. a reference to Three Stooges when Shemp died and they had to replace him with somebody who looked nothing like him. Uh, they would they would put, you know, other random, anyone they could find, they would put in costume and have them stand in for the other actors and actresses. Because after, I think it was maybe three, four weeks or six weeks or whatever it was, everyone left. Like half the crew, most of the cast, and it was they were just left to finish it by themselves. The craziest thing from the production that really stuck with me from like the do-it-yourself perspective is like all the effects that they had to do, you know, all practically. And they had to use these old type of uh, contact lenses that were not, they were not soft lenses. They were hard lenses. And those had to be popped in with force. And people, Oof. when they were in, they, you couldn't see with them. And so, like, they could only be used for 15 minutes at a time. And a person would have to just sit all day in 15-minute increments, take them in, take them out miserably. So anytime you see someone possessed with those white eyes, there's this horrible old prosthetic 
that's called hard lenses. I forget they 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 said the actual name of what they were. I wrote it down somewhere, but reading about that was mortifying. And of course, you can find in the documentaries in the book even they do make a point to mention how this was like torture for the actors and specifically the female actresses who, you know, Sam Raimi, a known goofball, but also a known guy who would like, didn't have a problem like whacking the women in in, in the head with like a, you know, a a fake two by four to get a shot. Yeah. He would really hit them in the face with it and shit like that. There's like like a, there's a a weird uh, uh, (laughs) vein of that through. I mean, this is, you know, some of it's just like done for shock or sort of for, you know, the kind of mischievous of it. But like, that's something else I noticed rewatching this movie. And even as I really enjoyed it, there's some stuff in here. Besides, I mean, the obvious thing is like the, the woman who's sexually assaulted by trees, which is sort of like a played not for laughs, but kind of a, yeah. And as, it's also not exactly played super seriously either. You know Yeah. I mean? Joe Bob <laughs> says like, I can't tell you how the rape by the forest relates to the evil or the zombies or anything, but right, there right. it is. Yeah. And then, and there's the other stuff, you know, like <laughs> I feel like there's something under the surface there, whether it's intentional or not of, you know, there's, the woman laughed, you know, the, like he's the thing that really creeped you out as an eight year old, like the, the woman who won't stop demonically cackling, kind of torturing Ash by doing, it seems to like eat at him even more than any number of like supernatural hell things he sees. Um, there's a, and there's some point where it's like Linda has been long since been possessed and he just goes, shut up, Linda. <laughs> and, like, and it's like, oh, man, there's just, I don't, and again, I don't think it's like some, you know, necessarily a strain of misogyny, but there's definitely something <laughs> like a little bit touchy about like that, whatever those relationships are in the yeah. movie. And in, in a way that's sort of interesting and, and also like, well, all the, think all the issues of like the, the troubles the actress has had on the movie is waved away in the book by Bruce saying, you know, Thank God I was the star of this movie, getting my ass kicked constantly because yeah. everyone else thought that they didn't have it as bad as me. Yeah. Which yeah. is like true, but also does not take away from all the horrible shit that these people <laughs> had to endure. Uh, and first of all, note that they took advantage of using non, non-union actors and stuff yeah. to pay them so little. Like this was such a... I think this is like... The, this is a part that is maybe controversial to, to talk about. Um like the the work ethic stuff because you know they took advantage of all this all these things they but literally you have to fact to me this is what i'll say this is a movie that's like a labor of love right from all involved and all they want to do is make this fucked up weird little movie to the point of they cold called people from the fucking phone book to get investments at one point like after they had tapped out the dentists and their parents and stuff so to me like yes it is taking advantage of people hundred percent, not denying that, but there's a part of like, we're all in, you know, we're all in this together. We're making this fucking scrappy thing that actually did end up eventually making money and hopefully making everyone involved money. I know the investors got paid. You got to hope that the actors did. They probably didn't until recently (laughs) you like to imagine, but you know, they would make up fake names for these actors who were in SAG uh, so they could not pay the union fees and they all got caught and like, consequences happened so they also hired all these non-sag actors who would you know not be too costly and they basically said as much like yeah we wanted to get these young people and i'm putting i don't know if i'm putting this into my notes but like get young dumb people for exposure (laughs) and who would like excited by that idea and like yes it's exploitative 
but I would say it's less exploitative than a lot of other things in, in life because everyone involved, I would say, was in the same boat. Like, Raimi wasn't... No one's making money on this. Raimi, in fact, was, like, putting more of his own money into it off the side, of course, when they ran out of money and stuff. So to me, another... This is a perfect example of what of what Joe Bob was talking about because that, to me, this whole production laid kind of the groundwork and the blueprint for, like, trauma and, like, what... Lloyd Kaufman does with these like really no budget schlocky sleaze movies that they're for me Troma's known for um like picking on uh taking advantage of people and not yeah. paying their people and I don't know any I know one person who's worked from for Troma who still has a good relationship with them but everybody <laughs> else is like fuck those people they exploit everybody so this movie did inspire that type of uh industry for sure but I don't think that's their fault. No, no. It is interesting to me also hearing about, I had forgot, I'd read Campbell's book ages ago. Oh, uh, it's really a, great. I'm reading it right pretty, now. It's really yeah, great. It's, I bought the so second good. one as well. I haven't read it yet. Is there a second nonfiction one or you just mean? Make yeah, it's, it's, it, it's Chins Could Kill too, basically. Like oh, more okay. Confessions of a movie actor. Yeah. Oh, great. Because I, I bought, just because it was on Remaindered someplace, I bought Make Love of the Bruce Campbell Way, the like jokey novel. Oh my God, I yeah. I read it. Uh, <laughs> Because I, I don't know, I thought it was a funny idea, and then I was like, I don't know if I actually want to read this. Um, if yeah, if Shins could heal is so interesting. I had forgotten the idea about them like going to the drive-ins and sort of like really, you know, focus grouping. Like you think of Sam Raimi as someone who really absorbed all these like, I and mean, he's so good at making. Uh, uh, we talked about this, uh, or I did on some, on maybe on my own podcast, talking about Doctor Strange. He really understands comics in a way. I think I'm like that kind of old-fashioned comics and like old horror movies and stuff like that he like has such a understanding of of how those things work visually that you don't really think of him as being like as calculating as someone who's like gonna go to the drive-in movies and take notes on what works you know and like (laughs) and say oh this is a good i mean now i think it's very accepted that that like oh yeah if you want to make a low-budget movie that might sell and like get your foot in the door horror movies might be a good way to go and yeah. I'm sure that was the case. That's always been the case. Raby didn't invent that idea, but it is interesting to hear him, to hear him described in such a kind of a calculating way. And again, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but you know, you, you kind of romanticize these things and think of Sam Raimi as this like, you know, guy who's like absorbing Spider-Man comics and universal monster movies and all that stuff when he's a kid. And then, you know, doing what he really loves, but you know, there's also this side of like, that well, that's really stuck. Sorry, Troy the strange. Sorry. Ah. <laughs> Sorry, say what you were saying again. I'll delete this sentence. That's, yeah, yeah. It's so it's you, there's like almost a calculating aspect is hearing about him, you know, doing his market research at the drive-in and saying, "Well, we here's what we could do to sell this movie." And then uh, obviously he loves horror because he puts it into a lot of what he's directed. Besides, even the stuff that's not horror, but then it kind of gives it puts it into a new light that he went on to do, you know. Uh, even something like, even though it's very much bears his imprint, Quick and the Dead and Simple Plan and The Gift and For Love of the Game, where it's like, oh, yeah, he was maybe that was always what he was working toward is like figuring out how to be like a, a you know, big time movie director, which is, again, nothing wrong with that. It's just interesting to have that sort of deromanticized a little bit from the, you know, the the genre guy that we all love and, and, and venerate. <laughs> Yeah, I really love all that drive-in stuff, especially because the way Bruce talks about it being like this like wild, wild west of no regulation at the time. Like that's how you saw movies that were unrated was like they would just play at the drive-ins. There was no regulation, which leads me to talk about like the whole video nasty era 
and how Evil Dead got kind of swept up in that and like banned in the UK for a long time. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second, but here's a little bit on the drive-in stuff that we were talking about. Kind of decided, hey, let's drop out of school and go make a feature film. So there's these drive-ins and we can make a movie that better than the crap we're seeing in the drive-ins. That was really, at that time, like 25% of the movies in America ran in drive-ins. Well, we have kind of a golden age in the 70s when uh, you could put almost anything on the drive-in screen. You had a period where the ratings board was not watching. So the 70s was actually a, a great time for all kinds of horror. There was an illicit nature to these films that were released on the independent circuit, you know, where you didn't really know where they came from. You know, the greatest films of the 70s and early 80s um, are films where you watch them and there's something unsettling about them to, to where you feel like was the person who made this entirely sane. Scene 22, take six, sound one. <laughs> that was a fun quote. Um, hold on. Let me just write down the timestamp of that one. I have to clean these up. 120. And that leads me to, I want to just talk about the video nasty stuff if I can find it. Give me one second. Uh, take your stupid comics and get... We'd heard him in a corner. He, uh, he made a little short horror movie that we all made. Handsome. He's not like uh, you don't think haphazard fashion until finally really didn't get released in domestically Boom. in America. Okay. This must be it. And Jerry Green reactions. I they would talk back to us, don't go through the door. Oh no. I think I saw The Evil Dead at the very first public screening, which was at the Cannes Film Market in 1982. Now, I tell people I saw it at Cannes, and they think that that's, you know, that I saw it at some fancy festival. I didn't go to the festival. I went to the Cannes Film Market, which was, especially at that time, which was where all the lowlifes of the world gathered in these little streets and alleys off of the uh, main avenue there in Cannes, and uh, they showed their movies strictly for commercial sales. It was finished for at least 18 months before it was actually released. And so all that time I was saying, bring on the evil dead, bring on the evil dead, <laughs> bring on the evil dead. And uh, finally it was shown to some exhibitors and the exhibitors went, oh yeah, let me at that. The movie actually didn't, it premiered October 15th, I think, of 1981 and really didn't get released in, domestically in America. Because of the, uh, the way it was rated, or not rated that is, it just didn't get much publicity. It was pretty much people knew it was playing because it had a showtime at the theater. But uh, very few reviews and ads were difficult to get. Television ads even more difficult. You needed to see it at a grindhouse on 42nd Street on a midnight show in New York. That was the real hardcore crowd. They went absolutely crazy for it. It played for a long time in Texas, and I was beating the drum for it, and uh, it, was, it was something fresh and new. And I think part of the reason it was so popular is it came out of nowhere. Nobody knew who Sam Raimi was. Probably no one would have ever seen Evil Dead um, if it wasn't for video. <laughs> um, when I was at college, like, somebody had it on VHS. And it was such Edgar a kind of crappy sort of third generation version 
which just added to the kind of the scariness of it. I remember being in a video store and asking if they had Evil Dead, and they said, copy got stolen. And I was just reading how it's the most stolen videotape in America. And my friend Jeff and I rented Evil Dead. Eli. And he actually watched it the night before, and he called me, and he said, this is the scariest movie I've ever seen. And he said, it's too scary to watch at night, so we have to watch it during the day. And my friend Jeff came over to my house, and he brought the copy of Evil Dead, and we put it on, and it probably took us about six hours to get through the movie because we were so terrified we had to stop and go outside and like sit in the sun. Well, Leonard Malton called it the most disgusting thing he'd ever seen, and wow, thank you, Leonard. <laughs> of course, it had that great you know quote from stephen king on it which really that quote literally propelled that movie because of the fact that stephen king had said that it's one of the most ferociously original horror movies ever made he had this image of evil dead as being the sort of the you know kind of a, a film born of hell <laughs> you know that it would like literally like come up from the depths of the woods and that no you know that it was almost like some kind of strange demonic snuff movie i mean for me Nothing terrified me more than Possession. The Exorcist was the scariest movie I'd ever seen. But Evil Dead was like 90 minutes of the most horrifying moments of The Exorcist happening to younger people closer to my age. My initial kind of like knowledge of the film was that it was like this bad, bad, evil film, that it was a, a, a video nasty. Basically what happened is it was very much when, similar to here, but when videos first kind of, there was the first video boom, there wasn't a separate classification for video. And a lot of the distributors were pretty naughty in terms of, say something like Lucia Fioshi's Zombie would be released at the cinema with 10 minutes cut out of gore. The same distributors would just put out the uncut version on video thinking that nobody would ever check. And of course they did. So when they kind of found out that this was happening, they just had a massive clampdown. There were films like Evil Dead, which is like, yes, it's kind of gory, but it is like a work of art in its, in its field. It's like, you know, this doesn't deserve to be kind of like, you know, uh, this doesn't deserve to be seen in this way. Even though it is kind of intense and gory, it, it shouldn't be lumped in with like faces of death and ice bit on your grave, you know? I think even Sam like had to go to like Leeds Crown Court to kind of defend the film in court. It's crazy to look at Evil Dead now and think that Sam Raimi was brought up on obscenity charges because of it that this is a video nasty, and that the reason that Sam Raimi made Evil Dead 2 funny was because he was put on trial in England. It's like insane. I mean, we've come so far. Did you know that? I did not. Isn't that crazy? So he yes. literally had to go to court to fight for the movie to be allowed to be released on video in the UK, and they eventually it did get released, but there was a long period of time where it was not available. And that's just kind of... Um, the video nasty thing I feel like is kind of baked in to its legacy as well. Cause I feel like I knew about growing up like, Oh yeah, this movie was, you heard about it. Like, like faces of death. Yeah. Evil dead was banned in the UK, but it's so fun to hear like why that was. And it's cause it's distributors were just sneaking in the movie. The movies would be censored for theaters and there was no body checking the videotapes. So they would just put all that shit back in. And that's kind of what led to the video nasty movement and you know prosecution or whatever you want to call it um just laws being made against these type of movies in the 80s which thank god we're not in that era of people censoring art but i say that as like right-wing reactionaries are taking over in america so maybe soon we'll have art banned what do you think i'm just 
um yeah i mean it's it is i think it'll be it won't be uh gnarly horror movies it'll be like stuff with you know uh like, nefarious like homosexual yeah. content oh, sure. yeah, yeah yeah you know stuff with like where trans people are treated as real people you know <laughs> and, uh i think it's kind of swung back the other way where that's what people get, get really get incensed about is treating you know normal things as normal <laughs> <laughs> rather than caring whether there's like a bucket of blood and something i think those those the reactionaries now probably think that's disgusting too but they, it's not really what they it's it's very it's uh you know it's very telling in a way that that's there's something like that it doesn't feel like anything could uh could get that much negative attention just for being gory anymore can you imagine yeah. I mean, i'm sure something could at some point but just showing blood and guts and then with this movie, it barely even has that much guts. It's like a lot more like weird effluvia. Than like, you know, you're not seeing organs necessarily. Um, and I feel like that just wouldn't make people mad the same way now. Uh, wouldn't make people that, you know, people get way more incensed about a, or at least that, that, that section of person that like sub sub demographic, which we're, I think often led to believe is a much bigger portion of the population than it is they're much more likely to get mad about or pretend to be mad about a, a you know a, a lesbian couple in light year than than in uh than like someone having a bunch of demons kick the shit out of them <laughs> yeah it's a good point in the uk the evil dead was trimmed by 49 seconds before it was granted an x certificate for cinema release the censored version was also released on home video at the time that's the you know at the time there was no requirement for films had to be classified for home video release a campaign by pro censorship organization nvla uh the national viewers and listeners association led to the film being labeled a video nasty and when the video Rec recordings act was passed in 84 the video version was removed from circulation in 1990 a further uh, 1990 for fuck's sake <laughs> a further 66 seconds were trimmed from the already censored version and the film was granted an 18 rating for home video release and then it wasn't until 2000 that the uncut version was available or was finally granted like an 18 rating for both cinema and home video. And in the U S the film received an X rating initially and films with that label, you know, were quite violent, and disturbing. The rating was often held by porn. The film has since been re-rated NC 17 for substantial, substantial graphic horror and violence. Though many recent home video releases have been released without a rating. That makes you want to look, that feels wrong. Like, isn't it rated R now? I don't know. I was trying. I, I, you know, I watched it on Tubi this morning. I don't remember if they listed the rating. <laughs> I um, so many uh, copies, including a, the 4K new one and the Blu-ray and the DVD. Um, yeah, no, technically the IMDb list is at N NC17. I think that's that, yeah. That's I think crazy. That the releases just don't say anything. I think they're all that's, just technically unrated. Yeah, that's so. That's and that's. Uh, I also wonder when you know. In reading about the kind of history of this movie's release, because it's all you know, it's always listed as 1981, 1981. But like, it had the kind of release where it was like in release for several years. Like, like they, I'm they sure, have... I'm sure it didn't go to the MPAA in 1981. You know. Yeah, I'm actually. I pulled. I had a disc because I'm actually. I'm selling a bunch of old Blu-rays that I don't have cases for anymore that I, you know, put in binders and now I have double copies of. So I have a bunch of loose discs and cases right here. And I found the Evil Dead on Blu-ray and I'm looking at the disc and it says Region A, US, not rated. 
Yeah. I, I wonder, I mean, they, they say it was that it got slap of the rating. I wonder, I don't wonder how you take it off. You know, like once something's rated and then you say, yeah. I want to release it unrated. Do you just not, I guess that's happened. Just lots not of times acknowledge it anymore. Yeah. yeah. You just don't, uh, you just don't, do you have to, I don't know if, I know you have to pay to be rated, but I wonder if you have to pay to use the, the official, you know, notation on your release. And maybe you just not, opt not to do that because Lots of places do get in it. Lots of movies do get in NC-17 and then opt to go unrated. And it seems like that's what they ultimately decided. Um, yeah, it's, I, that's to me, this movie is also iconic in that in my mind, it is the movie that has been released the most times. <laughs> oh, and the God, movie yeah. that I have bought the most. <laughs> Uh, the resurgence of Evil Dead in the home video market came through two companies that restored the film from its negatives and issued special editions. I'm sure you can name them both, but I will just say one of them is Anchor Bay, uh, Anchor Bay on VHS and Elite Entertainment on Laserdisc. Anchor Bay was responsible for the film's first DVD release in 1999, along with Elite releasing a special collector's edition DVD that same year. And between them, they've released six different DVD versions of The Evil Dead, most notably the 2002 Book of the Dead edition, packaged in a latex replica of the Necrodomicon sculpted by Tom Sullivan, and the 2007 <laughs> three-disc Ultimate Edition, which contained the widescreen and original full-frame versions of the movie, blah, 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 blah. I say all that to say, listen to Blank Check episode on Evil Dead. I think Griffin had, I also had it, but I don't have it anymore. The Necronomicon set, it like famously is like horribly made and it falls apart even if you don't touch it like it just like it like it's like decrepit i don't know how to yeah. describe it it's, it's like uh, this weird rubber latex thing that has not aged well it's falling apart it's it, it well i always describe it i never bought this one i actually don't have i have two on blu-ray and i have army of darkness but i don't actually have one hence i was watching it on tubi this morning um but it always it looks like it looks like it smells weird <laughs> Yeah, it looks like it smells weird. That's perfect. Yeah. If you Google it, it it it's it's so ugly looking too. <laughs> like it doesn't look like. I mean, yes, it's trying to look like the Necronomicon, like from the movie. But I would say it's not doesn't do a great job of looking like that. It just kind of looks like a weird book with a face. Um. Anyway, the movie was originally called Book of the Dead, and I think it was Irvin Shapiro, the famous can film market guy, who was like. You know, we've crunched the numbers and you can't have book in the title. <laughs> like nobody will want to people will think they have to read if they see that the movie's called Book of the Dead. So they change <laughs> it. They change it to Evil Dead. Um, I believe I took a picture of all the different titles that were suggested when they decided they couldn't call it that. And it goes Blood Flood, Fee Monsters, like females, 101% dead. Death, death of the dead, the evil dead men and the evil dead women, <laughs> and the evil dead. Uh, so I think they landed on the best possible title, even though Book of the Dead is technically like accurate and totally fine title, as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah, Evil Dead is a great title. It's I, it's funny that they would, <laughs> it's perfect that they would have a, such a list of like not really <laughs> shitty ones. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. because it, it now it's one of those things where it's like yeah, it's one of those movies where I would I would be I, obviously it was remade once. Uh, I wouldn't at all. I would com completely expect it to be remade just based. On, it's like the Fast and the Furious, which was uh, not a remake, but there was a title from the, they bought the rights to that title to name it to name fast and furious that from, from an old movie it's such a great title of course you need to remake it or title yeah. something else that uh i've already talked about all the stuff the actors went through but let, let me be clear they went through it for a hundred dollars a week <laughs> while they shot it fifty dollars a week for a pa um 
and they were all guinea pigs for the makeup prosthetics. I already talked about the Scoldero contact lenses that were huge hunks of glass, but the plaster casing that they had to put on to like, you know, make makeup for their face or make a replica or whatever it was, it ripped some of the women's eyebrows off. Like when they took it off, like there's so much shit that these people went through that I just wanted to mention. And like, because it's like a no budget movie, it means like the line of who does what is blurry. So everybody does everything. Everybody's acting, directing, producing. Um, I thought this little bit from the book was cute. I wanted to read it. Uh, the Hills Have Eyes was a very effective independent horror flick, and we had great respect for Wes Craven's ability to capture raw terror on the screen. So in one particularly grisly scene played out in a ramshackle trailer home, a psycho bites the head off a small bird and drinks its blood. And uh, behind him, Sam noticed a poster of Steven Spielberg's film Jaws torn in half, as if to say, as scary as Jaws was, what's happening in The Hills Have Eyes is much worse. So not to be outdone, <laughs> Sam put a torn poster of The Hills Have Eyes on the wall of Rob's basement, as if to taunt Wes with, oh yeah, Hills Have Eyes is nothing. What's happening in Evil Dead is true horror. And this set <laughs> off a tip of the hat from Craven in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Because in A Nightmare on Elm Street, a character's up late at night watching a movie on TV, none other than The Evil Dead. And when the Evil Dead, uh, when the sequel to Evil Dead rolled around seven years later, Sam put a torn poster of A Nightmare on Elm Street in a work shed. So we'll see who ups the ante next. And that was <laughs> written when the book was written, if Chins Could Kill. So I'm sure there's been more updates there. That's interesting. That reminds me of something I was thinking about rewatching it today. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if this means anything, uh, <laughs> but for so long... I think we've talked about this on, on New Flash before. Like Night of the Living Dead is like because I think partially because of the rights issues and the lack thereof is like the horror movie playing on the TV in any movie, right? Yes. Like it's it's They're like coming the, to it, get you, Barbara. Yeah, they just like that's what you play if you want to have someone watching a horror movie on TV, and it's not an old monster yeah, movie. Halloween does it. Yeah, yeah, and evil watching evil dead and how much of the movie is just like imagery and like crazy imagery and shrieks and you're just in this this like gauntlet of grotesque uh stunts that are sometimes really funny and sometimes really creepy it's like it's it's like another movie that feels made for that i don't i, I wouldn't say to i couldn't testify to you know how often it's actually appeared in the background of movies but it's such a like, I feel like it's such a referential, it's, it's such a reference to rather movie where I feel like if you want to have a character like watching a horror movie, but you don't want it to be Planet of the Living Dead, they're going to have it be Evil Dead or like referring to going to see a movie. I feel like there was just something I was watching, maybe Hustle with Adam Sandler, hmm. where like the daughter is going to go to a horror movie marathon and it's like Evil Dead. And they show like a very little bit of one. I'm not sure if it's Evil Dead or Evil Dead 2 that you see like screaming outside someplace uh, like it's just it's just so interesting to me that it's so I hate to, you know, overuse the word iconic, but it's so iconic that it's something that like you can take any, you know, 20 seconds of this movie and and kind of put it in the background of something. And you can say, oh, yeah, that's Evil Dead. Like I get I, they're watching Evil Dead. Of course, I get what I get what type of person this character is like. There's just such an immediacy to it that it's like, you know, it, there's no uh, there's no mistaking it for another movie. <laughs> Yeah, and like I think what's important to mention is that it's like not a great, it's not an original or a great story. It was not like great dialogue or great performances. I mean, I would argue Bruce, everyone's great in it, and Bruce Campbell's great in it, but it's very low budget at everything. Yeah, and this it's a movie that relies entirely on visceral elements and imagination to take the audience, you know, to get the audience to react. 
And that is why it stood the test of time because it's like a spectacle, sort of. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah, this movie. Yeah. It's like I describe all these Marvel things as like theme park rides or whatever, but this is more of a theme park ride to me. Right. It, he, I think he, Raimi, when he was promoting Drag Me to Hell, uh, called it, I think this kind of retroactively applies to the Evil Dead too, a spook blast, uh, mm. which he means to like evoke, you know, kind of funhouse horror or like. Well, a, Drag Me know. to Hell literally has like an anvil fall on a character's head <laughs> and their eyes pop out. So like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Live action that, cartooniness. Yeah. And that kind of like, it is very visceral the way that it feels like you're walking through a haunted house rather than as, as much as it is full of crazy technique and it is you know the the steady cam rushing through the forest and all these crazy angles and stuff like that the special effects and all that are just so visceral that you kind of do feel like you're you know it's kind of like the sticking your hand in the bowl full of grapes that are supposed to be witch's eyes or whatever <laughs> like it's that made into a movie somehow because you're watching some of these effects and going look and maybe that's why i'm able to watch it without like feeling sick to my stomach or or, or frightened or anything necessarily that you're watching stuff and you're like, okay, this is so cartoony looking. I know that it's not, it doesn't look like, like I said, there's not like a lot of guts in the sense of like, oh, there's, there's someone's lower intestine, you know, it's like goopier than that. And you're watching that going, oh, that looks like it's probably oatmeal or, or something like towards the end when one of the, one of one of the ghouls dies, there's like suddenly like this kind of light yellow brownish substance kind of like oozes out of the body. Yeah. And it's like nothing that would be in a human body. <laughs> it's not even, it doesn't even really look like pus or anything. And there's just something really visceral and like intense about that, even though you can look at it and go, well, yeah, obviously that's just like some sub, you know, they mixed oatmeal and food coloring or something. You know, it's like, it's hyper. I mean, is that maybe that's hyper real? I'm not sure if I'm using that word, word right, where it feels like, I don't know, there's just something really, you know, they're just the things that are the different colors that are spurting out. It doesn't really look like what a, person would look like if they were being chopped up or split open or whatever it's almost like crazier looking it's like this kind of more i wouldn't psychedelic is probably going too far but like yeah, there's heightened, some heightened yeah it's and, it's so heightened yeah. in a way that yeah that it, that makes it feel very like the fact that you can kind of picture them mixing up the special effects and putting painting on the makeup somehow weirdly makes it feel it doesn't make it feel fake it makes it feel weirdly more I don't know, more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, tactile in a weird way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I'm reading this section from If Shins Could Kill about Sam's directing. Sam also wasn't one for the standard medium shot close up over the shoulder angles that most film and TV shows use to quote cover a scene. As an actor, I found myself being photographed from every conceivable angle. If Sam could have put the camera up my nose, I think he would have done it. There was an entire sequence in the film where every shot was photographed at a 45 degree Dutch quote uh, parentheses tilted angle. That's quite severe. I must admit, we all thought Sam was crazy when this scheme was revealed, but he was a director. The results were very effective and hold up pretty well, even against the cockeyed MTV style used regularly today. As a result of Sam's boldness, the shoot spawned a number of low tech but unique camera rigs. Early tracking shots were easily accomplished from the wheelchair. When the moves needed to be smoother or more precise, they used a vaso cam, which was a poor man's dolly consisting of several two by fours placed on top of sawhorses. The two by fours were covered with silver duct tape, thereby providing a smooth, not free surface. And then the tape was then greased with Vaseline. And they would just put the camera on a two by four and move it across the, 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 the Vaseline <laughs> to make it. Play. It's incredible. 
Um, the next innovation was the shaky cam, which was basically a camera on a two by two by four that could run around with. And there was something called the elevator, which they called it an elevator because it was named after its first victim, Ellen Sandweiss. The rig was based on an old magic trick and allowed her to float in the air as if possessed without wires. It had two people behind her, like holding her with a lever through a window. Uh, there was the Ramo cam, which is like they would break a window and hit <laughs> a hold. All these techniques, including this, what they called a perverted game of Twister, like through a floorboard to have like all their limbs coming out of the board. And like these. Ellen and the, uh, Rob had to like both be under the same board at the same time. It all looks nightmarish and hellish, but they did it for our entertainment. God damn it. <laughs> appreciate it. And to, to expand on that Stephen King quote and how crucial it was. So they were in Cannes and they got their big break. At one of the many screenings, Stephen King happened to see our film. He liked Evil Dead so much, he wrote a hearty endorsement in the magazine Twilight Zone. In the article, he stated that Evil Dead was, quote, the most ferociously original horror film of the year. You can't buy that type of motion. So we begged him to let us use this phrase in all of our ads. He agreed, and it made a huge difference. A plug from one of horror's legends sent up a protective force field around our little film, and suddenly crit critics took a second or third look at it, and, you know, it started actually getting press after that point and playing, you know, that really great uh, screening at Cannes. New Line eventually paid off all their bills, basically, and bought it. The movie premiered in New York at February 4th, 1983. It had a sneak preview at the 42nd Street pre-Disney New York. <laughs> um, Detroit was the same, May 6th, 83. I love a lot of the smaller details from the book, like that, you know, they went to new york to edit it and joel cohen ended up being one of the editors on the film and they all became friends so sam raimi and joel and ethan cohen all became buddies including bruce campbell and they shot what became like a proof of concept trailer for blood simple together like right after doing evil dead together and there's this amazing story in the book i think or maybe it's a documentary where or maybe it's a commentary actually i listen to all three and they're very redundant but some of them have into little details like that Ethan Cohen saved the day at one of the first screenings of the movie because they had, you know, they had to blow up the 16 millimeter to 35 and it wasn't done yet. And someone had to go pick it up from Technicolor and it ended up being Ethan Cohen who had to go get the print and bring it to the theater. Uh, <laughs> I love all this stuff. So we've talked a lot about the outside factors of the movie. I don't know if we've actually talked about the movie itself, even though it's not, um, there's not a lot to talk about. It's as described, a bunch of kids, a bunch of college kids go to a cabin in the woods and read an incantation or whatever from the Book of the Dead. And then they all get possessed and die. And Bruce Campbell really gets put through the ringer, even more so in the second one and subsequent films. Um, but yeah, Evil Dead is iconic for all the reasons mentioned. And it all those elements and that all those like, steps they did while filming it to go as far as they did and make those prosthetics work and go the extra mile, even if it was not a fun working environment, it all makes the movie kind of one of a kind. Um, and again, read if chins could kill, if you want to learn a lot of stuff about the movie, including how making a film and selling it are two completely different things and how they had to learn how to navigate that. But it all is a happy ending. Their investors of the movie, I believe, all made five times their investments eventually after not making any money on it for several years, 
several years, even after it debuted uh, and did well for quote unquote its budget, it still didn't set the box office on fire or anything. It really was the video uh, era that took it over the top. I seem silly to, to go through the plot of Evil Dead. Well, yeah, there's not really, you know, it's it's like it's pretty much two things there. What's what's going, you know, sort of what's going on at this cabin and then, oh, shit, like what's going on is <laughs> people are getting possessed one by one. I feel uh, like what well, yeah, like, go ahead. I was going to say, I feel like the thing that I was just maybe just this occurred to me as I was thinking about this now why i like this movie a lot but maybe wouldn't consider it like one of the you know you know a top 10 or whatever like in terms of horror movies is that halloween and nightmare on elm street and uh night living dead and text chainsaw all have a lot going on underneath that you can sort of interpret in terms of like what the scariness of them is meant to evoke or like what it you know means ultimately and and i don't think this is a problem with the movie i just mean in terms of why maybe it didn't necessarily have the the same uh uh, like it doesn't loom for me as large as something like halloween or texas chainsaw even though i've seen it i saw it much earlier in life than texas chainsaw is that i don't know that evil dead really does have a lot going on underneath it (laughs) no and like that's that's okay like the movie is as we described like it as i had to mention earlier like it's not this incredible story. And like, I appreciate what Joe Bob was saying about like dramatic intent or whatever. Yeah. It having dramatic drive, but like, it's just a competently made thing. It's a well-directed thing. That is like, that is what the selling point is. You've seen this story or you've heard this story and we've seen this horror movie before, but Sam Raimi and his ragtag crew, like, you know, gave it like a shot in the arm with like their aesthetic and the practical effects and whatnot that has made it stand the test of time and be influential, even if not content wise, influential in how it was made. Oh and yeah. How, and aesthetically. Yeah. Like that, that, yeah, that's scrappy. Anyone can do it. Uh, I'm a guy with a dream in Michigan. I can make a Hollywood movie. Like that's kind of what this movie's legacy is to me yeah. more yeah, so the, than like the movie yeah. itself, even though I think the movie itself is a fantastic movie. And um, I don't know. It took me a long time. I don't know if I loved it as much as I do now of always. I think, well, I guess because I had that early youth experience with it, it's always loomed large, but I definitely watch it more now than I used to. Like I already watch it a couple, like I watch it probably once a year at this point. Uh Uh And uh, I always enjoy it. And I do think, I do think it's one of those series where like each one gets better. Like I really enjoy evil dead Two for all the reasons we'll talk about next week. And I especially love Army of Darkness. Yeah, no, I I think I actually like I I definitely I definitely like Evil Dead the first one the least of the three only just by default. But I, it's like I go back and forth between Evil Dead two and Army of Darkness. But I've never had a period where I was like, oh, maybe like maybe the first one's my favorite. Even though the first one's probably the most legit in terms of being just like a fucking horror movie. You know, like it's it's kind of the you know most uh, it's got the most cred in that department. But it's probably also my least favorite of the three. <laughs> Have you seen Within the Woods, the 1978 horror short that like was their proof of concept? For I Evil have Dead? not, and I saw that on Letterbox that you have. Yeah, it's on Evil Dead. It's on Evil Dead. Jesus, it's on YouTube. Um, 
which like it's it feels like it's one of those things that gets taken off of YouTube every few months because uh, this one's uploaded from ten months ago and I, it's kind of hard to it's it doesn't come up when you search it on Google like I had to do some some digging I'll send it to you if you're interested in uh, it's you know was shot on eight millimeter and the version that's on YouTube I think it's actually the best version that exists it's so poor quality it's kind of hard to make sense of any of it or like get like a real visual sense for it but it's basically genders flipped evil dead it's bruce and somebody else it's i think it's it's still ellen it's bruce and ellen and a couple other friends scotty and shelly going to the big cabin in the woods instead of a book this one's on an they're they're camping on an indian burial ground which they like desecrate or whatever uh bruce like i believe uh finds a dagger and takes the dagger and that's why they get uh fucked with but there's this great line that i'll see if i queued it up properly it's a great line that made me laugh really hard from within the woods this is bruce campbell you serious yeah don't worry about it you're only cursed by the evil spirits if you violate the graves of the dead we're just going to be eating hot dogs i love that line we're, you only you only get possessed if you fuck with the graves of the dead. We're just yeah. eating the hot dogs. Um, yeah. So with you know within the woods, it's so funny because you watch it and you're like, this is what got people to give them money. You're like, it's all it's all so unlikely that you really have to you have to hand it to like Sam Raimi and his producer Robert Tappert and Bruce Campbell for like selling themselves with this movie. It all wouldn't have happened without their tenacity i guess i want to say it's all just so unlikely uh that this happened and led to sam raimi's storied career uh so thank you stephen king for boosting it which which led to new line cinema getting the rights to it definitely read the book if you want to read an anecdote about how they were editing the movie in this at the same time brian de palma was editing blowout and they ran into him at an arcade and they played him in a game of Berserk, and apparently Sam Raimi beat his ass. This is one of those movies that's been talked about so much that I hope I brought some new information to you guys. At least I did to Jesse. So that made me, makes me feel like I'm mission accomplished here. Um, you know, the movie led to many sequels, which we'll talk about soon, and elevated the careers of everyone involved. Most of the actors never worked again. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> Elevated except the other actors. <laughs> yeah, everyone else except for Bruce never worked again and has thinks it's a horrible experience, basically. Um, but yeah, Evil Dead, we talked about it. I hope this was satisfying. I, I put it off doing this episode for a long time just because what can you say about the Evil Dead? It's, you know, one of the most successful low-budget movies in history. Uh... I'm currently toying with whether we're going to cover Drag Me to Hell as part of this series. <laughs> and uh, maybe. Why not? It isn't, but it is. It isn't, but it is. But, you know, Evil Dead spawned a media empire. There's a TV show. There's a video game adaptation from 84. There's many video games since then. Uh, one of the things they mention in the documentary is that there really was, uh, at one point in time, they turned down a pitch from New Line to do Ash versus Freddy versus Jason, presumably right after Freddy versus Jason was a hit. Um, and Tappert says they turned it down. It's not bastardized the franchise. And so they could leave open the possibility for Bruce and Sam to return down the line for like Evil Dead 4, which technically still hasn't happened. 
yeah. and technically could, but basically, I mean, it kind of happened. Ram, Ramey directed, you know, the first few episodes or at least the pilot of the TV show. And it is a continuation. It's just, you know, there's something low rent about a TV show that yes. it isn't. I've watched that show the first season at least now twice. And I haven't, every time I started again, I'm like, yeah, I keep wanting to watch it so I can watch the whole thing through. But it's just, it's not doing it for me in the same way that this movie does. And I don't know why. I th- maybe it's like you need these characters in smaller doses. Or it's something to do with like the character of Ash being this the way he is now. And like the iconic he's a different character than he is in this movie to say yes yeah, yeah um but we'll talk about all those things uh yeah i don't know why i'm so wobbly this episode um you gave me covid over the microphone yeah that's right <laughs> you're getting the brain fog yes all right this was the brain fog edition of the evil dead 1981 new flesh podcast We'll be back next week, not with Evil Dead 2, but with The Black Phone. The week after that, we'll be back with The Evil Dead 2, or Evil Dead 2, I believe is the official title. Then we'll be back with Army of Darkness, which should have been called Medieval Dead, and they fucked it up, and we have to live with it forever. It could have been called Medieval Dead. Imagine living in that timeline. Still a great movie, but it doesn't work better with that title. (laughs) And uh, perhaps Drag Me to Hell after that. But uh, basically, this series should lead right into the Jordan Peele movie Nope with no gaps in episodes. And then after Nope, we have to figure out, regroup and figure out what to do. But you'll be with us on that journey. And uh, jump on the Patreon this week for the Tribeca talk, uh, Vengeance in particular. And if Jesse's able to see it, if Jesse's able to pry it from the cold hands of Disney... Maybe we'll talk about Lightyear at some point in time. <laughs> or if Jesse, uh, Jesse's going to don a bubble boy suit and go see That's it right. in IMAX. <laughs> I got to see it in full 4-3. It's not going to be here next week. Uh, all right. This was Evil Dead on the New Flesh Podcast. Bye. All my friends are here for the best spring break of the year. Away from school and from S-Mart A week way off the charts A holiday with Ash All that I'd ever ask He's so cute and thin And that's why I love him This will be just like camp But with a slutty tram In a few hours you will see me Doing the nasty in a tree That's looking to get busy But fresh air makes me dizzy I'm so as perfect girl Tranquility, a chance for me to rest in a nice facility. I came up to this cabin to read and sleep and bake. Hope our headboard rattling don't keep your brood ass away. Trip will be wacky fun. Seven days to snuggle my honey bun. A week of drinking. Can't be marital sex. And tonight I'll make some snacks out of Hershey bars and checks. Listen to us now and make no mistake. We're gonna have fun cause it's spring break. We'll park, we'll score, we'll fall flat on the floor. We'll do all this and a whole lot more. Are you 
Forgive me if I don't stay around to watch. I just can't cope with the freaky stuff. 